Get to work cause good days to you I'll tell Of how the good old union is coming here to dwell Tell me which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Hi everyone, I'm Logan Williams and I'd like to welcome you to this Arise Festival event Arise Festival event discussing the Paris Commune, glorious harbinger of a new society. Today's forum is hosted by Labour Outlook, which is a fast-growing website bringing you daily news and views from across the left and those at the forefront of resisting the Tories. Today's part of our new Socialist Ideas series of discussions, more information of which can be found in the chat on the, on the YouTube. Those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it, and we can't hope to transform the world without understanding it. So I'm really enjoying this series of, in, of Friday discussions. We've looked at Gramsci, where there was a few hundred of us, Marx and Engels, and Sylvia Pankhurst. And today we're going to be looking at the Paris Commune, one of the foundational events of socialist history. For our discussion today, we're joined by Sandra Bloodworth. Sandra is a socialist activist and Australian Labour historian. She's written on numerous aspects of socialist theory and history, including through being a contributor to the Paris Commune and Ode to Emancipation collection of essays, which I highly recommend. It's fantastic. So just a quick one before we get into it, because I know we're all very keen to start and get this going. Please let us know where you're tuning in from on the chat on YouTube, and we look forward to seeing your comments about it. And also make sure if you're really enjoying the event, make sure you're trying to get other people involved by tweeting Labour Outlook at Labour Outlook or Arise Festival on the uh, at Arise underscore festival. And if you can donate, please donate to the link provided. So it's, and if you can, make sure you're buying a ticket to cover the whole cost of Arise, a festival of less ideas. We still need more to sell more tickets to cover the cost of this whole month. And I hope that we are enjoying this whole month because I definitely have been. And if you've already got your ticket, why not become a friend of Arise for £5 a month and help us expand and continue to grow these series of events which happen across the whole year, not just within this month. So let's start to get into the Paris Commune a little bit more because I am excited. So the Paris Commune of 1871 is still celebrated and studied throughout the world to one of the first working class attempts at emancipation, direct democracy and social change, with changes introduced that still have not been won in many countries today. So this event's going to have a look at what happened in the commune and how it continues to inspire us today as we struggle to, for a better future. <laughs> Over to you, Sandra. Thanks, Logan. Well, I agree with your introduction to why we're talking about the commune. Um, so let's start with what Marx wrote of the historical importance of the commune. He said, this was the first revolution in which the working class was openly acknowledged as the only class capable of social initiative, even by the great bulk of the Paris middle class, shopkeepers, tradesmen, merchants, the wealthy capitalists alone accepted. And so I want to begin with a sketch of the context and the space in which the uprising of the 18th of March, 1871 exploded. Belleville side by side with Montmartre, where it all began, is described by Stuart Edward in his documentary history of the commune 
as the most solidly working class district in all of Paris and the most revolutionary. Now, Paris had been transformed by Baron Haussmann in the service of Napoleon Bonaparte. New wide boulevards cut swathes through workers' districts, destroying their homes, something a lot of us know of even today. And the poor had crowded into Montmartre and Belleville, where they lived in appalling poverty and squalor, right beside scenes of the wealthiest magnificent homes and elegant stores and cafes built over the top of workers' demolished neighbourhoods. A London Times correspondent described Montmartre as rugged open spaces where the lawless crowds of these parts love to hold their meetings and park their cannon. And he refers to the cannon because just three weeks ago, hundreds of workers had helped the National Guard, a popular militia, move 250 cannon from military barracks into Belleville and Montmartre. They needed the cannon to defend themselves against bombardment by Bismarck. That's the workers, why they wanted to defend them. And Bonaparte had gone to war against Germany last July for the glory of France. But Bismarck's superior Prussian army had kept Paris under siege from the 19th of September to the end of January. And of course, workers made up the vast majority of the 60,000 who had died of hunger and cold. Adolf Thiers, hated as the butcher who repressed the 1848 revolution, had moved his newly elected government and their troops to Versailles. And so we basically, when the commune gets going, we have a, a situation that uh, Lenin would later call dual power, of two powers tussling, tussling for who is going to rule. Now, um, uh, Adolf Thiers had signed an armistice with Bismarck now, which included an agreement to crush Red Paris. So on the 18th of March at dawn, Sleepy workers emerging from their homes begin to notice that Thiers soldiers are preparing to remove their cannon. Fortuitously, General Pinot, displaying the general incompetence of his class, had forgotten to bring horses to move the cannon. So they had some time. And so women began offering bread and wine to the underfed soldiers, asking, why are you stealing our cannon? And the crowd is swelling now, transforming itself from sleepy spectators to increasingly angry and active, and active participants. An observer described the unfolding events as horses arrived. Women and children swarming up the hillside in a compact mass. The artillery tried in vain to fight their way through the crowd, but the waves of people engulfed everything, surging over the cannon mounts, over the ammunition wagons, under the wheels, under the horses' feet, paralyzing the advance of the soldiers. And Louise Michel, one of the most flamboyant of the radicals would later recall of these moments, crowds like this are sometimes the vanguard of the ocean of humanity. But it was not death that awaited us. No, it was the surprise of a popular victory. General Leconte three times orders the soldiers to fire on the crowd and a woman challenges the soldiers. Are you going to fire on us, on our brothers, on our husbands, on our children? Leconte threatens to shoot any soldier who refuses to do just that. And as they hesitate, he asks, are you going to surrender to that scum? A non-commissioned officer steps out from the ranks and calls out, turn your guns around and put your rifle butts up in the air. And to everyone's amazement, the soldiers obey. Now, Verdeguer, that young officer, 
will later be shot for this action. But the revolution has begun. An officer penned a typical report. We were stopped by a crowd of several hundred, principally children and women. The infantry detachment completely forgot their duty and dispersed into the crowd, succumbing to its perfidious seductions and ending by turning up their rifle butts. The London Times correspondent, returning from similar scenes around Belleville, visits the barricade where he had witnessed the laying of the first stone in Montmartre, and it had now, he says, grown to considerable dimensions because everyone who passes must add a stone from piles on each side of the street, and the stones are usually being assembled by energetic children having the time of their lives, presumably. Now, new barricades were springing up in every direction, the correspondent writes. Instead of a government blocking every street, as was the case in the morning, a hostile cannon was now looking down every street. So we've, we've just witnessed how revolutions happen. The attempted seizure of the cannon had unleashed a well of bitterness fed by two decades of dictatorship, poverty, and the ravages of Bismarck's siege. By midday, Hotel de Villa, the magnificent Paris town hall, was seized by the National Guard. So if you think about it, after just one morning of rebellion, they now have the confidence to occupy this grand building at the heart of political power. And the commune will create the most democratic institutions known to humanity at that time. The universal commune, they called it, a radical social innovation. The National Guard's leadership, lacking experience and confidence, uh, because they hadn't been formed that much earlier, um, they let the mostly conservative mayors set the rules for an election to a committee for the commune, and which they call, as they were calling it. Um, so for one thing, it excluded women from the vote. It wasn't totally democratic. But contrary to much that's written about the commune, this did not exclude women from the activities which flourished. The democratic innovations of the mass of workers themselves, in spite of the limited democracy of the mayor's election, were a historic step forward. All elected officials could be recalled at any time, and what's more, all kinds of civic officials like judges, magistrates, and top public servants were to be elected on the same basis, and they would, would just receive a worker's wage. So the whole structure differed fundamentally from the, even the most, demo, most democratic capitalist states. Those elected or appointed to officials' positions would share the consequences of their decisions with no privileges to hide behind. And even enemies of the commune couldn't help but convey the joyous atmosphere, which is typical of all revolutions. Ten days later, one of them recorded the experience of standing in front of the Hotel de Vere while the names of those elected to the commune committee were read out. And he wrote, I write these lines still full of emotion. 100,000 perhaps armed men spilled out of every nearby street and the sharp points of the bayonets glittering in the sun made the place seem like a field of lightning. The music playing was the Marseillais, the song taken up in 50,000 resolute voices. This thunder shook all the people. An immense sea of banners, bayonets and caps surging. The cannons still thundered, but they were heard only in intervals between the singing. Then all the sounds merged into a single cheer, the universal voice of the countless multitude and all these people had but one heart, just as they had but one voice. 
So the old state power had been demolished, and this for Marx was of momentous importance. Paris, the central seat of the old governmental power, and at the same time, the social stronghold of the French working class had risen in arms against Thiers, he writes. Paris had got rid of the army and replaced it by a national guard, the bulk of which consisted of working men. The first decree of the commune, therefore, was the suppression of the standing army and the substitution for it of the armed people. And the structures they, they created were, Marx argued, the political form at last discovered under which to work out the economical emancipation of labor. Because Marx had been arguing since the 1848 revolution in the um, 18th Brumaire, for instance, that you, workers would not be able to just use the capitalist state. They had to destroy it and take over themselves, but he didn't actually know how that would happen. This is the first concrete illustration of carrying out that theoretical position. And now, after the experience of taking matters into their own hands, the population enthusiastically joined in the debates and activities in dozens of radical clubs. So let me introduce you to some of the key most radical figures with years of experience in workers' struggles and close to Marx. Elizabeth Dmitriev, she was a Russian revolutionary who spent the last month or so in uh, London, went to Paris at Marx's request. On April the 18th, on her initiative, an appeal to the women citizens of Paris was posted on walls around the city and published in the newspapers of the commune. Can you hear the cannon's roar and the toxin sound its sacred call? To arms! Is it the foreigner who's come to invade France? No, these enemies, these assassins of the people and of liberty are the French. This combat to the death is the final act in the eternal antagonism between right and might, between work and exploitation, between the people and their tyrants. Citoyen, the gauntlet has been thrown. It is necessary to vanquish or to die. We must prepare to defend and avenge our brothers. Can you imagine having that on the walls in our cities today? I suppose it might come up as a meme, but people knew how to express themselves at those days. It signified the launch by Elizabeth Dmitriev of the Union des Femmes, or the Union of Women. It became the largest and most effective organization in the commune, meeting daily in almost every one of the 20 arrondissements. The membership was dominated by women workers in the garment trades, like uh, seamstresses, laundresses and the like. And the union's discussions included theoretical questions about ending private property and the issues of gender-based inequality, as well as solving the day-to-day -day struggle to provide food and fuel to families. They participated in the defense of the commune, maintenance of the barricades, turning to the sick and wounded. In cooperation with the com commune committee and its labor commission, they provided well-paid work under women workers control. Natalie Lamel was a bookbinder allied with Marx in the first international, and she worked closely with Dmitriev, as did Benoit Malon. He helped set up an asylum for orphans where they could be offered basic instruction. Paul Mink opened one of the first schools for girls. She requisitioned a Jesuit school because it was endowed with the most advanced equipment and laboratories. And there's so many things we could talk about that they uh, actually raised as reforms, which we can do in the discussion if people want. But uh, 
night work for bakers was 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 abolished, but there was actually a big debate about it because the anarchists in the committee actually didn't think that uh, the Bakuninists, they didn't think that the state should decide anything. And it took a big tussle to get it agreed that actually night work was going to be abolished. Now, Edward Vaillant set up a professional school of industrial art for girls, which introduced a new approach to teaching. Any skilled worker over the age of 40 could apply to become a professor. Free education with no church interference for both girls and boys. And teachers' salaries were raised with equal pay for women and men. Secular nurseries were set up. And we get a glimpse of some of what those children were taught because a gentleman wrote about how he witnessed a band of 200 toddlers marching behind a drum and a small red flag. They sing at the top of their lungs, La Marseillaise, this grotesque parade celebrated the opening of a lay school organized by the commune. The churches were taken over as meeting places for the clubs, schools, and other community activities. Though they did allow time for the usual prayers and ceremonies that religious people were used to carrying out. And Le Sagaret, a member of the International and author of one of the first books published about the commune, penned a description of one club meeting beneath the soaring ceilings and beautiful stained glass windows of one of the big churches. The revolution mounts the pulpits. Almost hidden by the shadow of the vaults hangs the figure of Christ draped in the popular oriflame. The organ and the people chant the Marseillaise. They discuss the events of the day, the means of defence, the members of the commune committee are severely censured and vigorous resolutions are voted to be presented to the Hotel de Villa the next day. So uh, occupying these odes to privilege and power and under the influence of the radicals, many of whom have been involved in workers' struggles for many years, workers embraced reforms well ahead of their times. And in fact, as Logan said, often things that people still can have not won today in most of the world. Allowances for widows of men killed defending the commune, whether officially married or not, and their children, whether legitimate or not. At the urging of some of the clubs, the commune endorsed the right to abortion. Any businesses whose owners had fled to Versailles were taken over and put under workers' control. And significantly, even though they had suffered under Bismarck's siege, they were determinedly internationalist, inspiring support around Europe, including thousands of demos in London, which I know about. And the Jewish-Hungarian worker, Leo Frankel, collaborator of Marx, was commissioner of labor. Two Poles were given responsibility for organizing defense. And most famously of all, skilled engineers and workers demolished the imperialistic Vendome column bearing Bonaparte's statue on the top. And the Place Vendome, unharmed because of their careful planning as it fell down, was renamed Internationale Place. Now, Gustave Corbet, the artist, who was he was persecuted for the rest of his life because he was accused of ordering the demolition, which has never been uh, proven, and he established an artist federation. Eugène Potier, author of the song, The Internationale, wrote its founding manifesto. And the Federation held all kinds of debates, debating the role of the artist in society and all the rest of it. And it attracted well-known artists such as Corot, Manet and Daumier, who scorned those who, such as Cezanne, Pissarro and Degas, 
associated who associated with reactionaries in Versailles. So you might want to keep those names in mind next time you attend one of the blockbuster exhibitions that tour around the world. Now Marx commented about all these innovations. What does this tremendous change prove to the bourgeois mind of all countries? Why that the commune has conspired against civilization and the unbridled savage savagery that the government unleashed at the end of May in the bloody week known as La Semaine Sanglante should be burnt into the consciousness of every anti-capitalist. Anyone who hopes that we will be able to transition from capitalism to socialism in a peaceful way should take pause. Government troops massacred at least 30,000, about 38,000 were arrested and more than 7,000 deported. Thousands fled into exile. In the last hours, Natalie Lamel took command of a contingent of the Union de Femmes. They marched, red flag in the lead, to defend a barricade under fire. The barricade uh, Le Sagaré dubbed the legendary barricade. There, 120 women held back government troops for several hours. One of many who were shot was the dressmaker Blanche Lefebvre, an organizer of the Union. Natalie Lamel cared for the wounded for hours. Their comrade Elizabeth Dmitriev was at Montmartre with Louise Michel and Leo Frankel to the last hours. Women, men and children chose to die bravely rather than surrender. Courage was their last revolutionary act. But on the other side, respectable women holding their dainty handkerchiefs trimmed with lace made by women workers who were now thrown into filthy dungeons took guided tours of those dungeons to gloat at the suffering of those women in, incarcerated there. They took particular pleasure in poking them with their parasols. And these war images are a warning. The respectable middle classes thought to be so cultured reveled in the barbarity that was unleashed to restore them to their rightful privileged place. Now much was, was made and still is made by many people of women burning historic buildings. And they surely did along with men and children because fire was a weapon of defense and Marx defended it and so should we. He wrote, while tearing to pieces the living body of the proletariat, its rulers must no longer expect to return triumphantly into the intact architecture of their abodes. The government of Versailles cries incendiarism the bourgeoisie of the whole world, which looks complacently upon the wholesale massacre, is convulsed by horror at the desecration of brick and mortar. And after the killing, the powerful and respectable set out to obliterate the memory of the example of the kind of world that workers can cre create if only they can take power. The Vendome column was rebuilt as a priority. <coughs> a Montmartre, the huge church of the Sacre-Cœur was built to eradicate the memory um, and the things they were desperately uh, wanting to be, um, you know, no one to ever remember, is the holy water replaced with piles of tobacco. They wanted to obliterate the sight of statues of the Virgin Mary wearing the fighter's uniform, red flag in hand and a cigar in her mouth, watching over debates about the need for secular education for all and women's rights, including abortion. Reactionaries like Pissarro played their role, 
saccharine representations of genteel street scenes and homely bliss in stately homes reassured the middle class that La Semaine Sanglante had secured Paris for their pleasure. But they could never erase the memory completely. Members of the Artists' Federation created powerful images of ruling class barbarism as a warning for future generations. Manet's Guerre Civile is perhaps the best known, but Corbet's depiction of children in his cell and the Federé lying dead in the streets seems less so, but his reputation protects it from total oblivion. And you can still see reminders in Paris of Louise Michel, Natalie Lemel, and Elizabeth Dimitrieff with squares named after them and various plaques and memorials. On May Day 1901, thousands joined the funeral procession for Paul Mink through the streets of Paris, chanting Vive la Commune and Vive Internationale um, in her honour. More than 600 police, 500 soldiers and 100 cavalry guarded the streets against a repeat of 1871, indicating that the ruling class was still haunted by the sphinx of workers' re rebellion, as Marx put it. More than 100,000 attended Louise Michel's funeral in Paris in 1905, honouring her ceaseless rebellion to the end. And I would say her image is much better known around the world than that of Thiers or any of his henchmen. Socialists and anarchists celebrated the Commune and its achievements every year for decades. They remembered with pride the courage of children, women and men who chose to die honourably rather than surrender. Their bravery stood as a symbol of resistance to the depravity of capitalism. Even in Broken Hill, a remote, remote mining city here in Australia celebrated the Commune during its years of industrial and socialist militancy every year until it began to decline in the 1920s. The Communards wall at the Père Lachaise Cemetery, where 166 Commune soldiers were executed on May 28, is still a mecca for leftists who go there to renew their sense of commitment. So the points I wanna leave you with are these. Revolutions are inevitable in this inhumane crisis-ridden system. The Commune was not an example of socialism, but as Lenin argued, a harbinger of that possibility. Living under siege, groping for the way forward, this first workers' revolution showed the kind of democratic structures which are part of the dynamic of the collective struggles of the oppressed when they're led by the working class, structures which can and should replace the capitalist state. And we see them and the astonishing creativity, collectivity and radical reforms that revolutionary struggles produce in a much more developed form in the 20th century, beginning with Russia in 1905 and 1917 in the workers' revolutions, um, when the working class had become you know, a more serious force and was uh, you know, much more a dominant force in society, because in Paris, the working class were in mostly small workforces, workplaces and a minority in society. As Marx and Engels had argued as young men in the German ideology, it is such struggle which can make workers fit to found society anew. And I would argue that belief in this possibility of self-emancipation is the heart and soul of Marxism. And that is why I think preserving the history of the commune is so precious. And I'll finish there. Thank you so much, Sandra. That was 
fascinating and really enlightening as somebody who's only ever read sort of basic introductions to the commune that was really detailed and really lovely so just while i let you get a drink of water and uh, just rest a little bit before going into some of these uh, questions that we have for you i'd just like to introduce matt wilgress who is an arise uh, labor outlook contributor and arise festival volunteer who is going to tell you a little bit more about what we can do to support the arise festival going forwards over to you matt Thank you, Logan, and thank you, Sandra, and thank you, everyone who's watching. Um, this festival goes on for a month, as you know, and as Logan mentioned at the start, please, if you haven't bought a ticket yet, they start at just £4, please do so. It's a purely voluntary operation, but putting on over, I think, 20 events over the month does cost quite a lot of money on technical and other infrastructure, so please do buy your ticket and um, if you want to watch back any sessions in this socialist idea season that you've missed on Marx and Engels and the crisis on Sylvia Pankhurst or the first one on Gramsci you can do that on the YouTube channel and if you are really enjoying these sessions and enjoying the Arise Festival then why not become a friend of Arise at the link provided in the chat and give us some regular support the festival still going on at this stage there's a big session that a lot of you would have registered for already with Jeremy Corbyn and global guests on Monday, June the 26th. And then we're proud for the first time this year to have our closing rally joint with the Socialist Future Current of Comrades in Young Labour on the left. And that's on Wednesday the 28th. And you can also get your tickets there for that specifically at the link provided. Um, also, one final thing, please do. Today's session is hosted with Labour Outlook, the blog. Please do follow Labour Outlook on social media and check it out daily for discussion on the left. And one final thing, the next Socialist Ideas session outside of the Arise Festival will be on Hugo Chavez and his relevance in the 21st century of Ian Bruce, who many of you will know, the, the author of Real Venezuela and journalist at Al Jazeera. And details on that will also be posted in the chat. Thank you, Logan. Thank you, Matt. And, and hopefully for those of us who are yeah, listening there for the, maybe the first time or hopefully not for the first time will be interested in buying one of those tickets for just four pounds or even just make a little start there and telling us where you're from in our chat so sandra is, is it if it's okay with you let's get into some of these questions which we have got prepared to try and complement that excellent in overview you gave us there and the first question we really want to ask is you went into some detail there about some of those key women who were able to help lead and form the cop and are at the forefront of both building and defending the commune's attempts to build a new society i was just wondering if you could go into a bit of detail about how the commune affected the position of women in france and the global socialist movement following its repression mm. Yes, it's actually a very interesting how advanced the ideas were about women. And partly it was that people like um, Natalie Lamel in particular, and um, one of the men she'd been involved with, they, they had been involved in, amongst women workers for quite a long time before the commune. So they were quite experienced. And the in the context of the actual, the such a reactionary role of the church, like the church would not recognize um, 
women's children as their, you know, legitimate children if they weren't married in the church and if the children weren't baptized and all the rest of it. But all these things cost money and the charges, like workers often couldn't afford them. So the church basically excludes them anyway. And then, you know, they make their life is made miserable by the state. So that, because the church and the state, in spite of what they said in the French Revolution, are not so separate. And it's interesting reading in the radical clubs, like the women were often the most militant, like they were they were quite impatient. They used to be objecting to the um Paris com the Paris the sorry, the Commune Committee wouldn't implement the things that people wanted quickly enough because the committee necessarily were some of the more conservative people. It's the, all the people in the streets and in the clubs who were the most radical. And um, and so like the, I think it, um, it's Kirsten Ross who comments that they um, like they represent and the reforms they called for, they represent the actual life of the working class much more than you know, all the rules and regulations, if you just look at all, all that, um, that the, the life of the work and the commune obviously represented that. And so that's why, you know, women's right to um, free love, women's right to abortion, the care of children, um, widows when the men were killed on the barricades and all the rest of it. And all, and some of the things that aren't necessarily seen when people talk about the women that changed their lives radically was the um, controls on rent and they put a ban on selling goods that were put into the pawn shops so that people could go back and get them when they could. And so small things like that, people don't always think of them as you know, women's issues, but they made a huge difference to women's lives. Fantastic, and it, you know, like I say, some of the some of those issues, I think, are often overlooked even in the modern exactly. progressive and labour movements <laughs> mm. as being women's issues more directly than potentially uh, men. And so let's move on a little bit onto sort of around the repression. And obviously, mainstream histories, as we both both know, and I think hopefully a lot of people know, often offer ruling class perspectives on a key event and obviously have an interest in ignoring the violence and the savagery of the repression of progressive movements like the Paris Commune. I was just wondering if you could go into a little bit of detail about the reality of the savage repression of the Commune as opposed to the sort of almost sanitised mainstream perspective. Mm. Yes, because well, the thing that they made a huge fuss about, and there's an element of sort of sexism in the whole thing of, you know, if you can discredit, if you can paint the women as being so violent, that makes, you know, it must be a real mark against the commune. And um, and so I think even some feminist writing, they concentrate on, you know, did the women really do this? They don't want, they think that it does discredit this commune if you admit that the women did burn down big buildings and things, it's sort of like that sense that well, women wouldn't be the ones who are leading the violence. But like everyone knew, if we don't defeat them as they can't, you know, because the, the troops are coming in and there's an agreement between both Bismarck and um, Pierre that they, like, they know that people are just going to be slaughtered. And so burning buildings was a way of holding them back. 
And anyway, it becomes a thing of revenge that they're not going to, as Mark says, they don't have any entitlement to come here and take back this architecture for themselves. And um, and so, you know, I think it's quite important that we defend the thing because even some of the historians who are more left-wing and they don't want to come out and totally um, condemn it, but they spend a lot of time arguing, oh, did the women really participate? It was just all the men. And, you know, because there is a reluctance to admit that the women played um, a self-active role. Like people always trying to find ways to show that, you know, because it was men that were elected to those officials committees and stuff. Um, and their eye isn't on where the real radicalism and involvement was. And so Donnie Glookstein, the um, SWP member in Britain, he has a lovely history of the commune where he goes into a lot of detail about the connection between the radical clubs and the uh, commune committee and that they actually, you know, he, he goes through how they actually did play a role in influencing what that committee agreed to and the committee then, you know, feeding back. Um, whereas that's often ignored. People just look at what the committee was like. And, um, and I think with the burning the buildings and that, a lot of the stuff that's recorded is all about the men. And so it seems like, oh, well, men built the, burnt the buildings, but um, the women took quite a lot of pride in the fact that they fought just as hard as the men did. And it was interesting in, when I read the records at Broken Hill of the trade unions, that mining town I mentioned, that they, like Tom Mann from Britain, came there to organise a, uh, a lockout. Well, I knew a lockout was coming. And he came there to organise the unions. And he always was giving speeches about the women in the Paris Commune. This was what women could do everywhere. Because, of course, you know, it was a male-dominated uh, workforce because of the mining. And so it's interesting that workers themselves want to celebrate the women fighting and saw it as a way of mobilising and giving themselves confidence. Um, whereas a lot of historians want to downplay it. People don't like the idea that women might be as violent as the men, which is, um, you know, women had as big a stake in everything as the men did. I got of off course, the topic a little bit there. But, um, that's okay. But it's, it's it's fascinating, obviously, like you said, it, it builds into that internationalist perspective there of Tom Mann, you know, the British syndicalist, using those ideas to sort of, mm. sort of motivate a new generation of workers. So mm. the, the next two questions, which I'll probably do together, is around the, around worker-controlled industry and democracy. So in Britain at the moment, we have a huge contemporary debate within both the British left and more broadly the Labour movement around public ownership. And it's what, what sometimes around viewed what? around public ownership. And it's sometimes viewed as a top-down state-led process. And mm. from what you from your discussion earlier, it seemed like the Paris Commune was an alternative to these. So the first part of it will be around that and what could the Paris Commune offer us as an alternative to this idea of top-down state-led industry and the second part is going to be about the fact that as a young socialist who sort of was politicised during the Corbyn years from 2015 to 2020 in the British Labour movement we're sort of always confronted 
with the idea that the transformation of society to a socialist one is inherently undemocratic. And I think from, again, what you're saying, the Paris Commune is mm. clearly uh, the antithesis of that. It clearly is a, a socialist vision of democracy, well, a vision of democracy which could be used in the socialist transformation in opposition to the idea that democracy is just crossing a box every five years. So if you mm. can answer those two, that would be fantastic. So is that debate about public ownership happening today, you mean? Yeah, definitely so. Oh, it, yeah. I haven't been it, following this that much. Yeah, I mean, I've been it's, following the strikes. No, it, it, but, I think it's sort of coming in as a part of that, sort of looking for that alternative yeah. of we're not just, I think the Labour movement on the left trying to not just be what we're against as part of the strikes, we're trying to build that positive sort of what we're for. And I think that it is a debate that is definitely still waging, and I think has been waging in the yeah. British Labour movement, sadly, since about the 1970s. Yeah. The trouble is that um, it is true that, like, there's why people, like, privatisation has been carried out. And when privatisation was happening, we fought it tooth and nail at every step. Because it was, but these questions are very concrete. Like, it was because government services were run down and prepared for them, preparing the population to accept privatisation. So public services of all sorts, like our public transport, you know, similar here to Britain, everything, um, we still at least have some public health. Um, you know, they get sold off. Our electricity grid was all um, state-owned. But then they get sold off. But it is true. People think if you just say, oh, we should re-nationalise, it doesn't seem, people remember back that they weren't any better then anyway. Um, and I think that's the problem with the way the questions posed and sort of try to answer because under capitalism, pretty much anything the government does and, the, and what the capitalists agree to do sort of as part, that fits with their program will of necessity not be democratic. They can't run anything democratically because they make profits in an undemocratic way. They have to have a working class that works and produces more wealth than what they're paid. And so that creates the authoritarian nature of the system. And for all the you know, trimmings of democracy, um, everything basically is run from top down. And so, see, in reply to people saying, we, we're just negative, my attitude is we're not negative. What is negative about demanding that women get more rights, that we're against women's, the, the bans on women, we're for uh, increased wages, we're for workers having more industrial rights so that, you know, if they're being badly treated, they can walk out, whether it's private or whether it's government. You know, because in the past, the left did, I think, um, and, you know, partly because it was seen as an advance, or definitely here in Australia, having state-run railways and electricity system was seen as so much more advanced than places like, well, I don't know, I can't remember, but places that didn't have them nationalised. But you, people don't see that. That's, that's not an answer to the question because no one thinks that um, taking the services back into government hands are going to be any better because the governments are talking all the time about austerity. You know, now they're preparing for war. 
here in Australia, they're going to pay, spend half a trillion dollars on nuclear submarines. And, um, you know, at the same time, workers are expected to take all kinds of cuts to our services. So just saying that our positive alternative is to put them back in the hands of the government, I don't think it holds. And um, I think we can, you know, I, well, to be honest, I think it's a very positive thing for people to fight against having nuclear powered submarines in a country that's got a history of opposing nuclear and we have held it at bay for decades and now they're coming in in the form of a war machine. Um, I, I think we have to be more confident to say they're the alternatives and um, yeah, so I don't know that you may not feel that answers the question, but I'm, I'm not really for, we, in Australia, we don't really raise, we do say that it should be taken back in public hands, but it's sort of more a propaganda point to point out that bosses have just ruined everything. But, you know, no one, even with the Labor Party, in, the Labor Party set about attacking everyone. So why would anyone think it's going to be better? Um, so will we just go, will we go on to, uh, the second question was about, um, oh. So the the how, direct democracy aspects of the commune. Yes, yes. Yeah, I know. Well, see, the people who write books that say it's all undemocratic, they're written by the classes that have, think they have a God-given right to rule. And it's quite obvious that if the mass of workers take over, well, some middle-class people, middle people can play a role, but they have to be supporting the revolution. Like capitalists that have spent their whole lives and their families have built up their wealth on exploiting workers, well, they are excluded because, and I think someone even said it in one of the revolutions, but anyway, I think we can say, if you're worried about not being part of the having democratic rights, go and get a job in a workplace somewhere and you'll have all the rights that everyone else has got when people are electing people to workers' committees, when they're forming all kinds of interacting structures to help reorganise society. Um, everyone can participate in them. It's just that they don't want to have a democratic society because you actually can't run an exploitative system democratically and they know if there's a genuine democracy where people at the grassroots are actually having a say well they'll you know they'll have to give up a lot of their wealth and power they won't be regarded as wonderful and having a born to rule right and um you know and i think we have to be really confident about that because as i mentioned the better examples really are 1917 and others in um like Hungary in 56 and um, Poland in 1981 against the Stalinist uh, mon monstrosities. But, um, you know, when you get a mass working class, that's the majority in society and they have huge workplaces and they can actually organise more. The Paris Commune, I think it is really important to keep in mind, it's, as Mark said, a harbinger of what's to come. But it does show you how far-sighted Marx was because... People today even say, oh, workers couldn't run society and this and that. Workers were a tiny minority in Europe and the working class in France in particular was um, still in quite small workplaces. There were only half a dozen or so that had more than a thousand workers in them. And yet Marx could see this glimmer of the future. Look at what happens when workers lead a struggle because they can't organise by exploiting other people because... They don't, that, that's not the kind of class they are. They have to organise collectively if they're going to organise. And if they don't organise, 
democratically and collectively, their struggles don't keep developing, I, I would argue. And so I think it's the most profound um, kind of democracy and involvement of people. And like you see it even when there's mass strikes and that people start getting involved in all kinds of strike committees and the union bureaucrats often try to um, stop all that. But if there's socialists and people who have a vision, you can you know, use the hist historical lessons to point out, we can all do this ourselves and involve people in the democratic structures from below to um, actually try to get um, you know, a struggle to go in the direction that they want to go. I mean, a lot of these traditions have just got to be rebuilt because they've been lost with the decline of the workers' movement and its struggles. Of course. At least you have got a lot of strikes. You're, you're in Britain, aren't you, Logan? Yeah, we definitely do. I'm, I'm a teacher, so I've been part of the oh. la largest hmm. teacher strikes in over a generation. So it's yeah, it, well, it, we have it, a, we've got a pretty, pretty dismal situation here, and now the unions won't do much because they don't want to oppose the Labor government. Okay, that's just an issue. But still, some unions um, in one of the ports organised quite a sized rally a couple hmm. of weeks ago because. Everybody can see if they have nuclear-powered warships in their ports, there could be an accident, but also they'll be a target as soon as war breaks out with China. And um, here, Fighting I don't for their own safety. Not, and and that's a, that's a, there's a parallel as well. Look, even though the workers have been under siege from Bismarck, you know they've got Bismarck on one side and they've got Thiers on the other. They've mm. even though they're supposed to be at war, they've made an agreement to crush Paris. And yet the workers are just so determined to be internationalists, reach out to workers. That, that is going to be a huge uh, question for the working class in the coming period, because here in Australia, the war uh, hysteria is becoming, um, you know, quite um, threatening because yeah. there's a new agreement that Britain's part of as well, AUKUS. Yeah, the AUKUS do. Are you talking about that yet there? Uh, yeah, we we have a session on peace coming up, which I'm sure we'll tackle. Oh, full. good, it'll come up there. Mm. So. so the Paris Commune is, a, I think, a signal of the absolute humanity and decency of the working class right from its earliest days, which, of course, you can see a lot of in Britain as well, beginning actually in the English Revolution. Mm. And um, it's uh, they, these are the things everyone is going to have to relearn to face up to the growing crisis in the system. And yeah. so I think revolutions will start to happen because I tried to bring out that the revolution didn't happen because the revolutionaries made it happen. Mm. It, it came out of the oppression and the poverty and the degradation of the system. And then, but the, I think possibly the last point, because we're probably running out of time, is that that I would make is that the preparation beforehand is so precious because the people that I picked out they had spent years in workers' struggles themselves. They knew how workers think. They had related to them. They had argued a lot of points. They knew the oppression that workers suffer. They knew which points where workers were going to be open to their arguments. The hatred of the church opened them up to a lot of the issues about women's rights. Now, some of those in the West, we've won a lot of those arguments. It's hardly like in the West most people support the old positions of women, but to be honest, in America, people still have to fight some of those battles. Um, and so 
you know, I think the Paris Commune is the beginning of the history of that class that is the future of humanity, really. Yeah. Okay, so I, as you said, I think that was an excellent point to finish on there. I think the, the strong the strong finish there uh, to a, a session, which actually I've been really proud to be part of this, has been really excellent. And I think to a lot of our our listeners and viewers will be something that's really education which is you know like, as so. you say that 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 birthplace almost of the, the working class movement so <laughs> i just want to say thank you to all of our watchers and viewers for taking part this afternoon and obviously to you sandra our excellent speaker please and can i just make a plug for my article because it's got a lot more detail as well in the marxist left review if people uh, google my name and the paris commune and Marxist Left Review is a socialist alternatives theoretical journal that I, I'm one of the editors. I've got the article we published on the centenary of the um, 18, uh, when did we, no, 150 years it was. Oh, fantastic. 2021. Awesome. So check out that, that article, which I think I have also read, which is excellent. I think it was part one of the few that I've checked out before starting this mm. call. Um, just want to remind our viewers to please do make sure you buy a ticket for the whole of Arise, the Festival of Left Ideas. We still need, as I said, to sell, sell plenty more because we are a team of volunteers to cover the cost of this amazing month and to build our infrastructure to get even bigger and better to try and face these crises that we're facing on all fronts. Uh, and obviously, if you can, why not become a friend of Arise and help five pound a month help us expand? We hope you really have enjoyed this event. In terms of future sessions that arise, there will be the major discussion next Monday at 6.30pm with Jeremy Corbyn and global guest entitled A World to Win, which promises to be quite an interesting event, I'm sure. So mm. please do register and many thanks again to Sandra and our viewers for taking part.